everybody. Welcome back to Ubaldi Reports. Now, this past week, I wrote an article and had it published titled, Syrian Conflict Contributes to Disarray of U.S. Foreign Policy. Again, it's Syrian Conflict Contributes to Disarray of U.S. Foreign Policy. Now, you can find it on my website at Ubaldi Reports. Go to the political tab, and I think it's like a one or two articles in, you will find the full text of that article. But basically, the article starts off, it talks about the horrific humanitarian disaster following the Syrian uh, city of Aleppo, which just fell to Syrian forces. And you can see the horrific humanitarian disaster. And the event received worldwide condemnation. Now, President Obama spoke at or gave notes at the death of Holocaust survivor, author, and Nobel Peace Prize laureate Eli Weissel. And I apologize if I mispronounce his name. And President Obama said this, In the face of evil, we must summon our capacity for good. In the face of hate, we must love. In the face of cruelty, we must live with empathy and compassion. We must never be bystanders to injustice or indifferent to suffering. Just imagine the peace and justice that would be possible in our world if we all lived a little more like Eli Weissel. Now, for all his eloquence, President Obama failed in his remarks. And what I mean by he failed in his remarks regarding Syria in this, he said, we must not become bystanders to injustice and suffering. But this is precisely what's going going on inside Syria today. The U.S. is virtually a bystander. We've been pushed aside by Russian President Vladimir Putin and Syrian President Bashar al-Assad, and to a lesser degree, who was equally added, is the Iranians under the mullahs out of Tehran. Now, right now, and it looks like a peace deal has been signed, or at least a ceasefire, Russia, Iran, and Turkey are meeting in Moscow to discuss how they can end the Syrian uh, civil war. Now, these are the same countries that have created death and misery to hundreds of thousands of Syrians displaced millions of people who are now flooding into Europe. Russia and Iran are the countries that are going to help provide a ceasefire. They're the ones who have been killing by the thousands of people that are against Bashar al-Assad. And where has the United States been? Since the end of the Second World War, the United States is the preeminent power that kind of kept a lid on peace. Now, a Danish excuse me, yeah, Danish um, Secretary General of NATO, who later became a Prime Minister of his country, stated in a book that the will to lead. He senses the problem of the world today is the lack of leadership coming from Washington. Now, this was the debate throughout the 2016 general election between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Both of them had different views of the world. Uh, President, excuse me, Hillary Clinton was pretty much going to go along with what Barack Obama did because she was the Secretary of State. She may be a little bit more hawkish than he would have been. And Donald Trump was kind of going to reevaluate how we conducted our foreign policy. But none of them gave an articulated vision of why the United States needs to be engaged in the world. Nobody gave an articulated manner of why, what role the U.S. plays. Now, I'm not here to say that the United States is an angel. I would be the first to admit we're not. I spent 30 years in the Marines. I served in Iraq and Afghanistan. It seems too often we're so used to using the military as a tool of U.S. foreign policy, 
and still instead of using all of our diplomatic and economic um, mechanisms. I'm kind of more under the tune of President Eisenhower. When he came in, he being a general, he was the last to use foreign, um, the military as a tool of his foreign policy. He used so many other tools, and that's what he based his foreign policy on. And he kept us out of a lot of wars. And there was some speculation that he kept us out of Vietnam for 10 years, that pushed that decision Future presidents, Johnson and Kennedy, made that decision to really get America deeper into Vietnam. But that's another story for another podcast. But this podcast is basically how the United States has become a, um, a bystander into the conflict of what's going on in Syria. And this contributes to a disarray of U.S. foreign policy. Now, I was equally in previous podcasts, I've criticized Donald Trump for having a lack of strategic vision regarding U.S. foreign policy, and I still hold that view today. I would like to know what is his view against Russia and Vladimir Putin, or is he going to have a more of a cozier relationship, which I believe would be an uttered um, mistake. But we're going to focus on the foreign policy of Barack Obama. When Barack Obama became came into the White House, throughout the campaign of 2008, he was totally against the war in Iraq. He said that from the beginning. But no one knows how he would have handled the vote because he wasn't in the Senate. So we'll have to take him at face value that he was against it from day one. But as soon as he came in, he, was, he repeatedly stated, I came in to end the two wars. We need to stop this war on terror. So he pulled out U.S. troops from Iraq in 2010, which all generals and all national security strategists said was a big mistake because they, we lost leverage, and that allowed ISIS, the Islamic State, to gain a foothold in Syria and parts of northern Iraq. And when it came time for Afghanistan, he sent a surge of U.S. forces in December and early part of 2010. But Robert Gates wrote in his book on duty that he really never believed in the strategy that he was articulating. And at the same the next sentence, he said, we're going to pull out. So his goal was just to get out. But it's ironic that... Uh, President Obama is leaving President-elect Trump when Trump takes office of the presidency on November the 20th. Instead of two wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, he's now leaving the president with five wars. Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, Yemen, and Libya. And each of them has a, a, a display of U.S. military involvement in each of those countries. The biggest involvement is Afghanistan, Iraq, and um, currently Syria. But the whole question is, how did we get to this point? President Obama repudiated almost 70 years of U.S. foreign policy since the end of the Second World War. This, this crossed over between Democrats and Republican presidents, that the United States would play the lead role in foreign, U.S. foreign policy. Now, a lot of countries may not like it, but they still respect the idea that they have a voice with the United States. President Obama came in and repudiated decades of U.S. foreign policy. And he believed that America, the problem with the world is America's too involved. We need to disengage. Or the common phrase that was coined during the, the Libyan conflict was lead from behind. But with, with that, lead from behind allowed other nefarious actors to assert more of a control. Now, when we pulled out of Iraq in 2010, the country that jumped in to fill the, the power vacuum was Iran. 
And when the president failed to act in the Crimea, failed to act in Ukraine, and we can debate those two countries at another time, but when he failed to, to, uh, to do anything there, and it goes back even further when 2009 he pulled the missile defense shields out of Eastern Europe, hopefully to codify with um, the Russians that they would help us with Iran, which never came to pass. That sent the first stage. And then when he went into, when Russia went into Crimea, and he said this wouldn't stand. And when they started getting involved in eastern Ukraine, and this wouldn't stand, and we're isolating Putin. Putin's never been more not isolated. And it showed the weakness of the United States, and the Russians just kept pushing and pushing and pushing. Then we get into the Syrian civil war. When the Syrian civil war first came on the scene in 2011 during the Arabic Spring, President Obama and his foreign policy team were very slow to react to that. They didn't know how to react. And when they did react, they made very strategic mistakes. So by not acting in Syria, and everybody thinks that we could have used military force, we could have done that, the rebels, we don't know who's who. That's probably true. But we could have worked with our Arab allies in Syria. But reports have been coming out that President Obama didn't want to do anything, especially in Eastern Europe and the Ukrainians, Crimea with Russia, and then now with Syria, because his singular goal was to, as he said in his inaugural address in 2009, if you will unclench your fist, we, some, I'm sorry, we will put our hand out if you will unclench your fist. So he was doing everything he can, no matter what the situation on the ground was happening, to get an Iran nuclear deal, which he did get. And we're now finding out that he's gave them billions of dollars, and Iran is still a major power bloker, alienated our, our Arab allies who now distrust us. And one would have to look that when the Arabs and the Israelis agree on something of this magnitude, something is wrong with our policy. So that said, then the biggest mistake he made was really on both sides, even his vice president had stated this, um, was the the Syrian red line. In August of 2012, he made a statement stating that it would change the calculation of the United States if chemical weapons were used or the movement of chemical weapons. Then he doubled down again in December, I believe December the 3rd of 2012, that if Syria used chemical weapons, they would get a, basically a military response by the United States. So in August, when this situation, when they found out much through the year of 2013, chemical weapons were used. And then when finally it came out that the Syrians did use chemical weapons against their own people, um, Barack Obama was just minutes away or hours away from launching military uh, strike against the Syrians. And he had the French who were going to go along with this. And then he decided to take a walk with his chief of staff, only his chief of staff. And he came back and decided that he was not going to do it. And he punted it over to the Congress. Now, some people said the Republicans never went along with his... Um, what do you call it, his authorization to use force, that is correct. The Republicans didn't. But the reason is, is not what many people think. The reason the Republicans didn't go along with it is they didn't want, they wanted to punish the Syrians, but they also wanted a strategy. What are you trying to accomplish? And he said, we're going to do pinpricks. Well, pinpricks to a military person, what is that? The military doesn't do pinpricks. So this wasn't a 
we're going to punish the Syrians. This was just kind of like, we're going to just tap your arm and say, don't do that. And even the Democrats were against it, not because of this, but they were against it. They didn't want another war, and they were just preventing for something on that. So when he refused, that sent the signal that you can push this president around. He never backs up his, his statements. And then later, when Secretary of the State John Kerry made an offhanded comment, Sergei Lavrov, the foreign minister of, of Russia, jumped at it. And they supposedly moved some of those chemical weapons. Then we're finding out this year those chemical weapons, not all of them were removed. And then because of his failure to act, when Assad was on the ropes about September of Oct- or October of last year, the Russians decided to come in with military force in their two bases inside um, Syria. And they started saying, we're going to go after um, these terror groups, meaning like ISIS. But all they've been doing is propping up Assad with money, with um, armaments, and with airstrikes. And they were punishing the Syrian rebels who we've been backing. And then you factor in the Iran nuclear deal, which the president gave everything up front, and we got nothing in return. And I know they've been stating that this prevents Iran from being a nuclear power forever. That's, that's totally false because this deal only lasts about 10 or 12 years. And then after that... All bets are off, but yet we gave the Iranians hundreds of billions of dollars. And when they captured a couple um, U.S. citizens, they were released. But that was all because a flight full of um, pallets full of money was on a flight that had to be come at land first before those civilians, American civilians, could come out. Now the State Department, the, the administration, denied that that was the case. But then. Josh Kirby, the spokesman for the State Department, finally admitted that, yeah, he put his head down. Yeah, that's that's what it was. So all this leads up to a foreign policy and disarray. That's why we're seeing problems in the Middle East, Iraq, even if they go after and defeat ISIS, you still haven't decided what's what's going to happen with Iraq. You still have the Shiites in control, dominated by the Iranians. The Sunnis have been marginalized. ISIS is a Sunni terror group. Now they've been destroyed. So who's going to speak for the the, um, these, the, um, the Sunni Arabs inside Iraq? And then you have the Sunni nations. What happens to them? They see the United States kowtowing to the Iranians, letting the Russians do everything. And because of the actions by the president, allowed the Russians to come back into the Middle East for the first time since 1973. So we've been kind of pushed aside, and nobody trusts us. And it seems like the president's doing everything he can to push around friends of the United States, much like he blamed in an Atlantic article by Jeffrey Goldberg. He blamed the um, the problems in Libya on the French, and especially our, our English allies. That, oh, they didn't stand up, and they, just, they could have done more. So he pushes the blame on them, when reality, the president never had a strategy what would come next. So he blames the um, the Europeans. He blames the Saudis as calling them free riders. Well, they do a lot more for security than most Americans think they do. And I'm not here to be a cheerleader for the Saudis, but reality is reality. So a lot of these problems add up to a Syrian conflict because the president didn't um, re, um, act, but the Syrian conflict contributes to a disarray of U.S. foreign policy. Now take it to what's going on this past week. Last Friday, 
in the United Nations, a resolution was passed by the Security Council, which is the five members, and then the members who become the Security Council on a rotating basis. They all voted 14 to nothing to condemn Israel for its settlement activities in the West Bank and other territories. Now, in that um, resolution, also called Israel an occupying power with regard to Jerusalem. Now, that includes the West Bank, excuse me, that includes the Western Wall, their holy sites, the, holy, uh, the Temple Mount and Mount Sinai, all the holiest shrines in Judaism. So they call that Israel is now an occupying power. That's occupied territory, meaning that Israel should pull out and this land goes to the Arabs. Well, these land that the, um, the president is talking about, Jews have been there for a, you know, since the time um, of Christ. They've only been out of there for like 16 years was when um, after the War of Independence and Israel, the Jews were forced back that the Arabs controlled that, but the Arabs never allowed the Jews to go there. Even though the Israel now controls Jerusalem, they still allow the Arabs to go to their holy sites. So it's, it's interesting what's going on. Then there's this back and forth that was the United States more involved, and John Kerry had a, like a really hour-and-a-half speech where he really laid into Israel. He kind of criticized the Palestinians, but not to the degree he did Israel. And with that, he never explained why he, they left that language where Israel's an occupying t- territory in their holiest shrines. Now, I got the, the settlement issues, and that is a major issue, and I have contention with Israel over the settlement issues, but that should be done in negotiation, not at the U.N. And it's kind of ironic that the U.N. has pushed, the U.N. General Assembly has issued 20 resolutions condemning Israel and only four regarding one to North Korea, one to Syria, one to Iran, and one to Russia. And with Russia, that was only over the, um, they considered Russia an occupying power in the Crimea. They didn't talk about the Russians shooting down or being responsible for shooting down the Malaysian airliner because they helped train Russian separatists. And now they're finding out that Russia was actually had Russian personnel on that anti-aircraft weapon system that took down that jet. They didn't mention that. They didn't mention Russia sending weapons and troops into the Crimea, I mean, to um, the Crimea and Eastern Europe, I mean, Eastern um, Ukraine. They didn't mention anything regarding Russia's involvement in the Syrian civil war, bombing hospitals, killing civilians. That was never mentioned. They never mentioned anything with China and the South China Sea. They didn't mention any anything that Iran's doing throughout the Middle East. It seems that they're only after Israel. Now, it's interesting because now we're getting a new president and Donald Trump is going to look at, what do we get for the UN? I understand how his, his inception back in 1945, but the UN embraces dictatorships. They put the most reprehensible countries on the Human Rights Committee. Even though they condemned Israel, they also con- condemned Israel as one of the worst countries for the women's rights. It's kind of ironic. I, Afghanistan and Saudi Arabia far better than Israel. Some labor policies they pushed through. The World Health Organization condemned Israel for some of its health practices. Of what's going on among all the countries in the world, Israel is the one country, one democracy in the Middle East, and it gets the most attention by the United Nations. And just 100 miles away, a couple hundred miles away, or even that, 
you got a, a huge civil war going on, displacing millions of people, and nothing's being done. So it's just interesting how this is all playing out. But this goes to the disarray of U.S. foreign policy. And the president is basically handling this outsourcing U.S. foreign policy in in Syria, you've got the Turkish, Russian, and Iranian meeting, ministers meeting. I mean, think about it. You have Turkey, Russia, and Iran meeting to end the civil war and put a ceasefire. It looks like it's going to be happen today. Russia and Iran were complicit, helping out, giving money, troops, bombing civilians in support of Bashar al-Assad. And this is the same president, President Obama said back Five, six years ago, Bashar al-Assad's days are numbered. Well, apparently that's not the case. And it seems that Barack Obama is going to be out of office before Bashar al-Assad is. So, and this goes back to U.S. foreign policy. Now, Donald Trump is going to take the mantle of U.S. foreign policy, and he has to understand the role the United States plays. Now, I feel more comforted to know that James Mattis, who was the Marine Corps general in in charge of CENTCOM, a couple of years ago, knows U.S. foreign policy. So I think he can probably push the president to realize the United States has to be engaged around the world, but it still comes down to what John, Donald Trump will do. But this goes to show our, our foreign policy is a disaster. And the president keeps thinking that we always have to use it's either the military or nothing at all. And I would say, no, we have so many tools in our tool shed but we just don't use it. And we need to understand the regions of the world that we're facing. And when John Kerry made a speech, he does not understand what he they just did. This is going to have ramifications and it's going to hamstring the next president because the Arab world does not think like we do. They think differently because of their culture and their history and their, their many th- uh, thousands of years in that region. They think differently. And all we did was cause further problems and put U.S. foreign policy in disarray for the first time in decades. So we'll have to see what happens. I hope it turns out better, but I'm not, I'm not optimistic. It's going to be a challenging four years. So if you get a chance, go to Ubaldi Reports on iTunes and on Stitcher. Tell me what you think of this podcast. Go to my website, Ubaldi Reports. You can read this article, The Syrian Conflict Contributes to Disarray of U.S. Foreign Policy. You can find that under the political political tab. If you get a chance, go to Amazon or Barnes & Noble, whatever bookstore, and look up my book, The New Business Brigade, Why Businesses Need to Hire Veterans and the Untapped Resource They Represent. I just want to let people know that veterans have a valuable tool to, to reshape American business. So go again, The New Business Brigade. And again, let me know what you think. I just really like to know what you think of this podcast and other podcasts and comment on it. And I'll bring it up on my next podcast. Hey, but thanks for listening. Keep continuing listening. And we'll listen next time. Check out Ubaldi Reports. All right, take it easy and have a great New Year's.